This is a rational perspective, and I'm Alec Hogg. Well, ever since my first visit to the Berkshire Hathaway AGM, that was back in 2006, I've been keeping an eye out for investment professionals who follow the Warren Buffett playbook. Well, there aren't as many as you'd expect, considering the fantastic record that the Oracle of Omaha has built up over half a century. Many of them claim to follow his approach, but when you dig into the actual process, most of them make too many adjustments to be true Buffett disciples. But today, we get to talk to the real deal. London-based David Kricher is the man behind Cedarburg Capital, currently one of the world's best-performing investment funds. Last year, Kricher's fund, which focuses exclusively on Chinese companies, delivered an astonishing 75% return for his investors. He's with me right now in our London studio. David, that's 75%. Is that a misprint? Uh, no, it's no, it's no misprint. It was um, 75% net US dollar return, so net of fees. So after every, all the costs involved. No, that, that's, that's extraordinary. We're going to pa- unpack the whole thing, but it is focused on China. You're South African, as we already can hear, and with a name like Kricha. Why China? I think why China? Because I think it's easier uh, to add value as a, as a, as an active investor. You know, obviously, coming from South Africa, having lived in the UK for the last sixteen, seventeen years, I wouldn't want to manage uh, South African equities. I wouldn't want to manage UK equities because I think there are a lot of uh, very smart, long-term oriented investors with patient capital. In China, there are lots of very smart people, but there's a real lack of patient capital, and hence. That creates a lot of inefficiencies. So I would just say it's more low-hanging fruit there than I think there are, there are in, uh, in the UK, the, even US small caps, certainly South Africa. Low-hanging fruit. Now, I was having yeah. a look at your, yeah. um, uh, the presentation that you put together and you quote Charlie Munger. You're a fan? Yeah. Big fan, yeah. Yeah, and Charlie Munger, interestingly enough, uh, less than a year ago at, at, uh, at both the Daily Journal meeting uh, on the West Coast as well as, as, as at, at Berkshire commented on how he thinks in China there are uh, very dominant, very entrenched companies selling at much lower multiples than in the rest of the world, specifically the US. And that's our experience as well. A quick diversion. Let's go to the 2017 Berkshire Hathaway AGM and join Charlie Munger and see exactly what he did have to say about China. I do think that the Chinese stock market is cheaper than the American market. And I do think China has a bright future. I also think that there'll be growing pains, of course. We have this opportunistic way of going through life. We don't have any particular rules about which market we're in or anything like that. Well, Charlie's delivered a headline anyway now. Munger predicts China market will outperform U.S. China will outperform the U.S. Well, that was Warren Buffett adding his few cents to what Charlie Munger said earlier. Let's get back to our interview now. 
with David Kricher. Something I also picked up from your presentation is that you say China is offering half the price and twice the value. Uh, just explain that. It, it, it sounds to me like that's the place you should be putting mm-hmm. your money. You show your your returns are, mm-hmm. are, are quite mm-hmm. evident. But unpack that for us. Yeah, at the time we we drew drew that up, and this is about nine months ago, so it might not be a hundred percent the case today. But at the time, we compared sort of. Uh, Diageo, which is Jack Daniels and you know household brands and the spirits company versus its Chinese peer, Quechua Maotai. Um, and Mao, Diageo is growing six, seven at most, eight percent a year. And Maotai is growing uh, actually much more than twice that. Uh, it's growing at about 25, 30 percent. Um, but at the time, Diageo was trading at twice the pre tax earnings versus Maotai, which made no sense, we thought. Maotai, uh, or Diageo's average uh, top six brands are 156 years old. Maotai is about 400 years old. Diageo doesn't really, with the exception of Scotch, doesn't really dominate any category. Maotai has uh, 60% uh, market share of premium Baijiu, or white spirits category in China. So it's a household brand. It's got 99% added brand awareness. So if we look at spirits companies, we look at some internet companies, we look at some financial services, we look here in the UK, get some great uh, wealth asset managers, St. James's Place, Hargreaves Lansdowne, compare them versus their Chinese equivalent, a company called Noah. And similarly speaking, you've got, you got twice the growth in China, yet you're paying half the price. Um, and that's probably no longer uh, uh, true after last year's very strong returns, but the Western companies are still trading in a premium despite Chinese companies growing much more rapidly. You speak basic Mandarin. Basic Mandarin, yeah. So if you were to say, good morning, it's nice to be with you here in your studio, how would you say that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, are you testing me? <laughs> no. um, yeah, my, my language skills are pretty, pretty sort of rudimentary. I actually mm. got some of my Chinese homework here with me uh, today. Um, <laughs> As he pulls out a book, <laughs> goes off microphone to show me. <laughs> um, do you, do you, yeah, what, what got you to, to learn so Mandarin? Serendipity got me into China. So my first role 16 years ago was working here in London for First Rand, uh, picking uh, Asian uh, equity strategies. And so I did that for three years, met about 300 funds, uh, allocated to five of them. For three years, like, well, this is what I want to be doing. I want to analyze companies. Uh, but there are only about uh, there's a handful of these 300 managers that I would want to work for, that give my own money to. And uh, <clears throat> so I joined a, a value shop called Mondrian. Spent seven years there. And again, just through serendipity, this was 05. There were two jobs at the time, two roles. One was to cover Chinese equities. other was to cover European banks. Now, I could have been the Sockchain or the Lloyd's TSB Expert, thankfully, as European banks become less and less uh, significant, I just got lucky and uh, continued. Did you have a choice on that one? I did not have a choice. Mm -hmm. I would have accepted the the European bank's job. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, my guess is European financials probably down 70, 80, 90% since then, with Chinese equities are up multiple times. It's amazing and, how do you get those paths, those forks in the road. But you mm. are clearly South African. Do you, did you, mm. Where did you grow up? I uh, grew up in the Cape, uh, uh, high school in Joburg, studied at Stellenbosch, 
I studied statistics, came to the UK in 01, and have been here ever since investing into Asia. So three years uh, with First Rand um, in the indirect way, seven years at Mondrian, where I had responsibility for their China book, which is about $3 billion when I left. And then in 2011, set up Cedarburg uh, with two, two co-founders. And you studied here in London as well? I did. I studied London Business School. There's an there's a, uh, excellent value investing program there run by a guy called Eddie Ramsden, which is very similar to Columbia's value investing program. Obviously, Columbia is the home of, the home of value investing. Ben Graham, Buffett, and, and dozens of other that's Very where Buffett went, didn't he? Buffett mm. went there, yeah. And uh, would he approve of the value investing course that you did here? I think so. I mean, uh, Eddie Ramsden uh, goes to Omar every year. He's been going there for the last fifteen years. He teaches pretty much the sort of value, so the the, the Buffett playbook, as well as the Joel Greenblatt playbook. I don't know if you're familiar with Joel Greenblatt. He's a you know professor at Columbia. And, um, yeah, so the emphasis is on trying to buy good companies, uh, so companies with moats and honest management, excellent long-term oriented management when they offer a margin of safety. Those three M's. Three M's, mm. exactly. Yeah, moat, moat management, margin of safety. How do you find them in China and, and specifically mm. – uh, the bat companies. Baidu, mm. you don't have in your portfolio. We do. Oh, you not do. In the top 10. Not That's in the right. top 10. Yeah. So Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. Yeah. Now, South Africans want to know all about Tencent, Tencent which yeah. we'll touch on in yeah. a moment. But those three have all had fantastic runs as maybe investors outside of China mm. start discovering them. Mm. How do you get the margin of safety? Still? Yeah, margin of safety these days in a company like Tencent, I would say, is, is slim. Uh, we think it's trading at maybe 85, 90 cents in the dollar of intrinsic value. So pretty close to intrinsic value. But, and there's a big but, and that is its intrinsic value is growing at quite a rapid pace, say 30% year on year. So very, very happy to own it. We wouldn't buy at these levels. Um, but when you have a, a tailwind like that, um, it, 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 uh, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say never sell a great business, but you have to think pretty darn hard before you sell a great business like that. Do you it's, agree with the, the Buffett philosophy that you buy it and hold, well, the average pe- holding period forever? I mean, our average holding period hasn't been forever. I mean, last year it was maybe our turnover is maybe about 30%, so that implies a sort of a three, four year uh, holding period. Um, but there are companies that we have, we've owned since day one in the fund, company like Clear Media, company like Netties. Um, and these are all Chinese companies? These are all Chinese companies. Yeah, we exclusively invest in companies from greater China. So China, Hong Kong, Taiwan. Or non-Chinese companies where at least half of earnings or revenue come from uh, from that region. So a company like the old Yahoo, which is called Altaba these days, sort of 85% of intrinsic value is its stake in, in Alibaba. Uh, why, why not live in China then? I have lived there, as long as I've lived there, sort of two months at a time. Uh, it's It's not a great place to raise kids. Uh, pollution is pollution is, is 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 a big issue in in many parts of the country. Certainly in most of the big cities, and uh, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, for the last thirteen plus years, I've been investing directly in Chinese equities, adding you know north of six uh, percent alpha um, from London, and so 
it is what I know and it has worked. And so I don't sort of see if, you know, sort of, if it ain't break, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's an interesting point that because mm. many times in the past, in South African history, mm. you would have old mutual and Sunlum based in Cape Town saying their distance from the Johannesburg Stock Exchange mm. gave them advantage. Of course, the greatest uh, proponent of that theory is Warren Buffett himself, yeah. who sits in Omaha, not in New yeah. York. Yeah. Does it give you philosophically an advantage, or how, how do you how yeah. do you actually when you when you think uh, about all those airfares that you're spending going to China <laughs> so often? How do you justify yeah. it to yourself to stay here? No, I, th- I, 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 I think Buffett s- said that the hardest part of the job is the, is the temperamental side of it, is managing your, one's emotions. And I think it's a lot easier to manage uh, one's emotion if you're not in the, sort of in the noise and in the melee, um, if, you, if you're a little bit removed from that. So Buffett's a very famous example, but there are others like Sir John Templeton uh, used to be in the Bahamas, Bahamas, I believe. Mm-hmm. They've got Alan Gray with Orbis sitting in Bermuda. Um, you've got a guy like Kerr Nielsen from Platinum, who's also ex-South African, uh, sitting in Sydney. You've got – there's plenty of other examples. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on one's uh, style, investment philosophy. But if you're a low-turnover, um, long-term-oriented uh, investor – then to sort of remove yourself from Mr. Markets, uh, all the greed and fear, all the emotion that's that's very prevalent in a place like Hong Kong or Shanghai, Beijing even, uh, makes it a lot easier. What about accounting? When here's the term Chinese accounting, which mm. is, suggests <laughs> that it isn't to be trusted. Yeah, yeah. Can you? No. No, you can't. Uh, the... All of our 20 holdings are big four audited, but that does not mean much because all of the big four in China have, they've all signed off on, 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 on fraudulent, fraudulent financials in the past. And as we've seen with Steinoff recently, you know, it, mm. it, it, it does not mean that much. So in the last 13 years, I've invested in several dozen, very close to 100 Chinese companies. We haven't had any fraud or corporate governance blow-ups. So it is possible to um, avoid that risk, but you've got to do your own homework and you have to ideally have boots on the ground in China or access to, 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 to local resources, which we have in the team. It's myself and three Chinese analysts. And we have an office in, in, in Shanghai where the head of research is, is based. And they, they are, unlike you, completely fluent in Mandarin. They are native, uh-huh. native Chinese speakers. That's right. Exactly. exactly. So you've got to kick the tires. Do you, do, you speak, the tires. do you speak to management as well? We do, and that's usually towards the end of the process. So we typically, when we analyze a company, we'll be speaking with you know, up to 20 even more different sources of information. And I would say the two uh, best sources of information on the governance side of things is former employees as well as customers. Because these folks would tell you exactly what you need to know in, with respects to management integrity, the culture of the business. Um, from a customer's point of view, um, they will, at a minimum, sort of, you can corroborate what the disclosed revenue and disclosed volumes versus, versus what, what is this customers or these customers telling us um, to triangulate. But we go beyond that. I mean, we, we do go out and count trucks. We visit 
several retailers and, 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 and check shelf space, speak with distributors. So these are the types of cust- yeah, former employees, customers, uh, competitors, distributors. Scuttlebutt. Suppliers. Scuttlebutt. Full Fisher. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Full Fisher Scuttlebutt. That's exactly. That was a big part also of the London Business School um, sort of syllabus. And at the very end of this process, we, we speak with management. And the reason we do it at the end is, you know, management, this is universal. It's not unique to China. Management has a tendency to sell. And, and uh, um, so it's easier for us to cut through that once we've gathered all our information. It also makes for a better conversation. Let's just break a little from the interview because David Cricker is quite clearly a follower of Warren Buffett and all things Buffett and Munger. So I went back to the 2017 uh, Berkshire Hathaway AGM where Warren Buffett referred in some detail to the book under discussion where Scuttlebutt made its first appearance. One of the best books on investment was written, I think in 1958, I think I read it around 1960, uh, by Phil Fisher called Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. And All the countries went, companies went to hell eventually. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it, it talked about the importance, I mean, or the usefulness of what he called the Scuttlebutt method. And... and uh, you know, that was something I didn't learn from Graham, but every now and then, it's turned out to be very useful. Now, it doesn't solve everything, and I mean, there's a whole lot of more. I acid. saw you do it with American Express and the salad oil scandal. Yeah, yeah. You're still doing it on Apple, you know, decades later. Yeah, yeah it, it, in certain cases, you actually can learn a lot just by asking a lot of questions. And I give Phil Fisher credit. Uh, that book goes back a lot of years, but... but the, the basic idea, uh, you can learn a, a lot of things just, just, just by asking in some cases. I mean, I used to, I mean, if I got interested in the coal industry, just say, to pick, pick one out of the air, you know, when I was much younger, more energetic, if, if I went and talked to the heads of 10 coal companies and I asked each one of them w- way later into the conversation after they got feeling very, uh, it felt like talking, and I would just, you know, I'd just say if you had to go away for 10 years on a desert island and and you had to put all of your family's money into one of your competitors, which one would it be and why? And, then, you know, and then I'd ask them if they had to shell short one of their competitors for 10 years, all their family money, why? And they, everybody loves talking about their competitors. And if you do that with 10 different companies, you'll probably have a better fix on the economics of the coal industry than any one of those individuals has. I mean, it, it, there's ways of getting at things and sometimes they're useful sometimes they're not but sometimes they can be you know the idea of just learning more all the time about i'm i'm more specialized than that by far than charlie i mean he wants to learn about everything and i just want to learn about something that will help berkshire but it it's it's a very you know it's it's a very useful attitude toward have toward the world and of course i don't know who said it but somebody said the problem is not in and getting the new ideas, but shedding the old ones. And there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth indeed. But then again, who tells it better than the Oracle of Omaha? Let's get back to that chat with David Kricher. Do you think you would have picked up Steinhoff? I don't think we would have invested in Steinhoff. Um, I can say that with a lot of um, uh, confidence based on the way that business grew. We like, and the debt, the balance sheet. If you look at our 20 holdings, every single company we own uh, has a net cash balance sheet. In other other words, cash is more than debt or there's no debt. So it's quite interesting because China has been 
in the news a lot for because of his debt. But at the at the at the court pro- corporate level, at the listed uh, corporate level, that, that's not really much of an issue, especially for these dominant consumer businesses, these dominant internet businesses. They have uh, their growth has been cash generative, and uh, and so debt is something that uh, that that I that I don't like. Uh, issuing equity is something that I absolutely loathe. It's like my pet, it's my pet peeve, and and hence um, there are I think there are a lot of things that would have made us skeptical about skeptical about Steinhoff, um, including the business model. You know, sort of low end retailing, it's tough globally, right? Brick and mortar. Mm. Um, I, I I don't think we would have necessarily identified it as a fraud, but I'm pretty sure we. Had it been a Chinese company, we wouldn't have invested in it. So, in a case like that, you wouldn't have even got to the point of no, we wouldn't have need, no, we wouldn't have finding because, out whether they were they were yeah. honest or not. No, mm. exactly, because with, I think within the first sort of day of of, of 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 looking at publicly available information, we would have we would have concluded it was highly unlikely to meet um, our quality mm. criteria. But, yeah. but as far as the Chinese companies are concerned, mm. are there enough, is there enough of a universe for you to be able to find yeah. these gems? So there's a huge universe. If, if one takes the 100, if you take $100 million market cap or above, companies listed in, in onshore China. This is dollars, huh? Yeah, $100 million market cap or above. You're talking about 5,000 companies. If you take the A shares, that's a Shanghai, Shenzhen listed uh, Chinese companies. Eight shares in Hong Kong, Taiwan listed in the U.S., even some in the U.K. and elsewhere. Over 5,000 companies. Our quality universe, in other words, those companies that, are, that meet our quality criteria, we've identified about 130. So 130 that's a decent universe, but it's tiny as a percentage of the overall. It's about two and a half percent, and I think that's where China, uh, sort of sadly today, fall falls short, both in the moat and the management side of things. So, so if you think of most most of the things in the studio was manufactured in China. That's sort of low end price taker type businesses, mm. uh, and that's pretty, um, I'd say, representative of of the overall universe of companies there so there's a lack of moats not that many great consumer brands so a very commoditized kind very of commoditized you know you, virtually all chinese exporters are price takers highly commoditized widgets um, but then also the other m management you are looking at um i think steinhoff is an unfortunate um, recent example but i think mostly in a country like south africa certainly the u.s and uk Business folks have tended to um, be straightforward, take a long-term view, be aligned with minorities. In China, it's the inverse. The, the mindset there, by and large, is to make a quick buck. So that could extend to outright frauds, and there are dozens, if not hundreds, of frauds and zombies trading in companies like Hong, uh, exchanges like Hong Kong or, or, or the U.S. or elsewhere. Or it could just lead to... Um, Shortcuts when it comes to how you treat your folk, your your, your employees, uh, how you treat the environment. So, a company that that we've visited a uh, a lead battery uh, producer a couple of years ago. It's a stable duopoly, uh, lead acid battery technology, 150 years old. It's used in sort of electric uh, bikes, uh, little vehicles, light light vehicles for 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 for, 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 for couriers, etc. So we think so far so good. Stable duopoly. We've got an eighteen months uh, replacement cycle, um, brands distribution, 
when we visited them, it was became very apparent very quickly when you walk around the factory floor, workers are constantly exposed to lead, which is highly toxic. So when we asked them, we said, okay, we screen our workers weekly to ensure that they uh, that their health is okay. And, and if it's not okay, we move them to uh, an office job uh, for them to recover. And then, you know, so mm. that is, A, it's unethical, but B, it's unsustainable because ultimately these companies are earning super normal margins. Eventually they're going to have to comply with environmental and health and safety standards and then margins would halve. Mm. It's an interesting uh, focus that you've got and one given the economic growth rate of China, given what Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett say about China, mm. that the people are, are smart, they work hard, yeah. um, that you would expect more competition, more people going yeah. in there. Yeah. Do you think it's the language barrier that, that might be stopping them, or is there something else? That's a really great question. And, and, and uh, yeah, we, we launched the fund six years ago because China was, was, was sort of hated and, and, and people assumed all Chinese companies are frauds and China's about to blow up. Um, but uh, amongst that sort of debris, we found lots of great, great businesses at bargain prices. Today, it's, it's changing, but it's still, we, we, uh, we're not bumping in, when it comes to company visits, for example, we're not bumping into a lot of competition. Um, I, I think it's partly, partly language. I think it's partly the Western media. Who now? If you take the the, FTSE, the the FT Wall Street Journal, The Economist as examples, I'm a big fan and subscribe to all of those publications. But when it comes to China, I think they're not particularly good because there's there's a significant bias in their reporting. Call it China bashing, mm-hmm. and that's sort of the go-to um, you know for most Western or most international fund managers. That sort of prescribed reading, right? So. I think that's made a lot of people. Um, I think a lot of people misunderstand China. Um, Chris think, Becker doesn't. I think Chris Becker uh, and and and. Are we talking about the Nasdaq CEO? I think uh, what they they got many things right, but one of the thing things they got right is to spend a lot of time in China, and to partner with locals who they can trust, and I think that's vital. You cannot become a China expert by. Um, not going there. You need to spend time there. You need to have a network there. Um, have you got one yet? Would you say? I think so. I mean, obviously, we have we have the office on the ground in Shanghai. We're a team of four. Usually, two out of four uh, uh, of us are in China. I was in China in December. I'm going there in two weeks. Um, I typically go out four or five times a year. Spend two three months of the year there. Um, our chairman is a former CEO of Deloitte China. Um, so he's got a great ma- Peter Bowie. He's got a great network there, uh, and, and 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 we've benefited from from his network, from his ex- ex- expertise. Um, Do you think being China focused and going in with maybe a different approach, more open mind, has endeared you to your contacts that side of the fence? Yeah, I think so. And we're we'd love to learn, and 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 I love going there. Um, it's a fascinating culture. I would not say I, you know. Um, there's there's always something to learn, you know. It's that's I I won't pretend I I, I would delude myself if mm-hmm. if I if I if I said I know everything there is to know about China. 
two big things I need to mm. talk to you about. Number one is Tencent, given that it's, mm. it has such a huge impact on every South African, given mm. uh, the NASPAS owns a third of Tencent. NASPAS is uh, 20 or 25%, mm. depending on which index you're looking at, of oh. the whole JSE. Mm. You said earlier that it's not quite at its intrinsic value yet, so and you you like holding on to it. Should South Africans, though, given that it's such a high percentage of their portfolio, start getting worried? You know, I I, I think Nasdaq is a name that you that one could own on a on a ten year plus investment horizon. It's you know I have two young daughters, uh, and, I, and I would love to own a, a company like Tencent or, or Nasdaq. For their university funds, um, I think that the growth runway is stretches beyond a decade. Uh, take advertising revenue, for example. So WeChat, which is its key uh, social media site, in 2016, WeChat advertising revenue was 1.1 billion dollars. Uh, in the same year, Facebook's advertising revenue was 27 billion dollars. So 25x. Facebook has more users than 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 than, than WeChat. It's, uh, it's about two billion versus one billion, but uh, WeChat users are twice as engaged as Facebook users. They spend ninety mil- on average spend ninety minutes on the site daily versus fifty minutes. Um, there's a lot more that they can do. They are absolutely tied in. Um, so you would so switch that from one point one mm. billion is going to become twenty five billion, and it's going to be, go beyond that. You would switch from Facebook if you owned it I to Facebook. To I think Facebook's a wonderful business. I, mean, I, I couldn't comment on the, the valuation today. I haven't looked at it at, uh, very recently. I think Facebook is a wonderful business. What could go wrong? I think with 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 big tech businesses, the the biggest risk, the number one risk, is regulatory. And on this score, we actually think that Chinese companies have lower regulatory risk versus the, let's call it U.S. tech or global tech. So if, if one considers Alphabet, Google's parents, and, and Facebook, and Google got fined uh, several billion euros last year by the European Anti-Competition Authority. And so uh, as these businesses are growing outside of the U.S., they, they're coming in to come up against antitrust or anti-monopoly uh, um, risk. Uh, China, on the other hand, they quite like national champions. Um, there's, there are plenty of examples of that. If we take online travel, for example, C-Trip, the number one uh, player, sort of the Priceline.com uh, equivalent, uh, bought the number two player, Elong, bought the number three player, Chinar. To become to have seventy five percent market share, that would not be allowed. Sitting wouldn't be allowed in UK mm-hmm. or Europe. Probably wouldn't be allowed in the US. Uh, in in the in the sort of um, uh, old China, if you like, you had Shenhua Energy, which is a, which is a very large coal company, merging with Guardian to become the world's largest coal company, the world's largest thermal power company, the world's largest coal. So they're chemical. quite happy. No they worries like about antitrust. No, no issue. But mm. there is a regulatory risk. Mm-hmm. And it uh, it is it relates to censorship. So as long as these companies um, stick with the government's policy and play according to the rules, that risk should be mitigated. And because Tencent, Alibaba are eighteen, twenty years old, we think that risk is is is, is manageable. You mentioned Alibaba, love it. Yeah, even at these levels, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that Tencent is. 
you know, sort of trading 40 times plus uh, this year's earnings. Uh, Alibaba is only trading at about 30, low 30 times um, with, I would say, equally entrenched uh, and, and, and growth runway with likewise stems go, go, go beyond the next decade. Well, people who only invest in the U.S. will be listening to this thinking they can go for their <laughs> Alibabas. Something that is, is really interesting, though, about the, the way your business is structured or the way the fund is structured, it's a $335 million fund. Partners have 40% of it. That's Does right. it mean it's your money, you and your partners? That's, that's right. Your cash yeah. in there? Yeah, that's right. Uh, partners in the business and their immediate families. How did you get that, Rana? It's a big, it's a big slug. Have you got some very wealthy partners, or we have, did, did first rand pay? Uh, well? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could say. I wish it was the latter. Uh, we have one uh, very significant uh, investor who is a twenty percent shareholder in the business, um, who is also our largest client. Uh, but then myself and immediate family have uh, have a big chunk. The bulk of my net worth is invested in the fund. I don't own any other other than uh, the the property that I live in. I don't I basically don't have any other assets. Well, when you're growing at twenty percent compound in the last six years and seventy five percent last year, it uh, it quickly adds up. That seventy five percent flash in the pan. It's not going to happen anytime soon. We don't expect it. Uh, it's it really follows two three years of pretty modest returns, you know, low single di- digit dollar dollar returns, whilst earnings was growing at let's say 20% year on year on year. And so to a large degree, it was it was just share prices catching up with intrinsic value, catching up with, with earnings growth. Um, so let's like, understand this. You, mm, you, you're invested in China. The mm, Chinese market was out of favor. Earnings mm, continue. Profits in China on mm, those companies that you're yeah. invested in continue to grow, yeah. but the share prices didn't. And then they all came together last year. And you had the good, not the good fortune, but the, mm. the, the skill to have been invested in those that outperformed the market generally. Yeah, I mean, we, we were, yeah, we were, we, we were positioned. I mean, we were, we were sort of very patient. I mean, if, if, you, if you go back to 2016, 2016 was actually quite a tough year for the fund. Uh, our index was up 5%. The, the fund was down 7%. Um, not because fundamentals of our holdings were, were poor. Um, the intrinsic value grew close to 20% that year. Um, but to a large degree, it was driven by Trump coming in. <laughs> so Trump... Part of his ticket into office was an anti-China rhetoric. And so in Q4 of 2016, when Trump came into the Oval Office, uh, Chinese companies, especially the U.S. listed Chinese companies, were hit very hard. Um, if we take NOAA, for example, NOAA is the wealth manager that we own. It's kind of like a PSG consultant, Hargreaves Lansdowne in China. Their earnings grew about 20% in 2016. Share price was down 20%. We liked it at the start of the year. So, of course, we, we, we doubly liked it at the end of the year. Um, NOAA was up you know, close to 100% last year, um, just as we saw a, mm-hmm. a, a, a re-rating. Uh, fundamentals remain sound. Earnings grew close to 20% again last year. High conviction. How many stocks do you have in your portfolio? Top 10 stocks close to 80%, I think 78% today. And then there's a, there's a sort of a tail of another 8 to 10 names. I think today we are 19 names. The company's name is Cedarburg. That's right. As far as the investors are concerned, you're the only South African. Your colleagues are all Chinese. Uh, why Cedarburg? Where did that come from? <laughs> so, uh, so I used to have a – I just got married. And I was on my honeymoon uh, in the Cedarburg. Um, and 
posed the question to my new wife uh, whether she'd be okay if I sort of left my very stable, very predictable job at the time and, and for, the two, for us to basically do something entrepreneurial. And, um, must and she said yes. Quite a lot of convincing <laughs> for a new wife. And she no, was happy? No? She was very happy. No, well, she's, she's happy been, now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's been, you know, she's been in, in, in my corner and it's been awesome. And, and I think, you know, a different analogy might be the way we invest. The Cedarburg is this beautiful area, three hours drive north of Cape Town, as you might know. Um, but it's a bit off the beaten track. It's a wilderness area. And that's kind of what we're doing. You know, we, we're um, looking for undiscovered gems. Now, clearly, companies like Tencent and Alibaba, one could argue whether they're undiscovered. But I say that's a relatively small part of our portfolio. Um, Would Warren Buffett approve if he had the time to go through in some depth the particularly those top 10 holdings that you have? I, th- I think he would with the, with the caveat that 40% of our portfolio is internet, which is a field that he… Uh, well, he does admit that he, 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 exactly. he made a mistake there. Exactly. He, ha- he has admitted that. Yeah, I remember, I don't know, do you go to Berkshire Hathaway? Yeah, I've AGM? been there. Mm-hmm. I've actually taken the team, a team a couple of times. I think the first time I went was 05, 06, so pretty uh-huh. much around your first, first visit. It was a couple of years, a few years ago, where he uh, was asked about Google, mm. if you recall. Mm. And he said it was a fantastic business model. He couldn't, he couldn't punch a hole anywhere in it. Mm. And everybody there, or not everybody, I suppose, mm. but most people there went out and bought Google shares and, of course, did extremely well out of it. Yeah. Buffett himself didn't. Yeah. He also has spoken often about Amazon. Yeah. He hasn't bought the shares That's either. Right. Uh, so in both of those, he sees great companies but just can't bring himself to invest. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you've got over that hurdle. Well, maybe, but I, I mean, I feel uh, when, I, when I look at the sort of 20, 30-year-olds and see how engaged they are, I think part of the reason why Buffett has been um, s- uh, sort of uh, slow to invest in tech is because he's not a power user. He does not, you know, he, has a, he doesn't have a smartphone and he doesn't spend a lot of time uh, on the internet. He has a Twitter account and I think he's tweeted, what, half a dozen times? As he does <laughs> half a dozen tweets. Okay, okay. But um, he, has, he has gazillion it, followers, yeah, uh, which he right, hasn't used. Right, mm. um, And so I think if you regularly use the products and the services and, and you, you see how addictive they can be or how useful they can be in the case of Google, the case of Amazon. I mean, I hardly shop anywhere else. My colleagues uh, sitting in China uh, buy things on, 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 on Taobao or Tmall, uh, the, the, the two, uh, Alibaba's main, main uh, uh, e-commerce sites, as well as JD.com daily. Um, and, and you see the competitive advantage, the, the value proposition of these products and services versus brick and mortar retailers. It's, it's, it's very stark in China. But to his credit, Buffett has invested heavily in Apple. So he's, he has, he's yeah. getting there. It's right. taking exactly. him a while, but he's exactly. finally getting yeah. across yeah. the line. No, he's, he's, uh, he's up a lot on that one. Well, it's been fab- uh, fascinating talking with you. David Kricker is the Chief Executive and Chief Investment Officer of Cedarburg. Well, that was David Kricher, who I learned after the interview is the son of Neil Kricher, the former managing director of Momentum Life, who went into academia to serve as professor of international finance 
at the University of Stellenbosch Business School. The last time I saw Neil was in Omaha at a Berkshire AGM. The apple certainly hasn't fallen far from this particular tree. Until next time, so long.